So, Austin, the question I think that we as film watchers should always be asking ourselves is what is cinema, what is film, and what is cinematic language? That is a question I want to plant in your head as we jump into the violent, rude, vulgar, and incredibly opulent and beautiful world of the quite singular Peter Greenaway with his most accessible and well-known film, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Woman. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who will happily avenge your death, Austin, by making your enemies consume your dead body, but only after it's been seasoned and cooked by a French Michelin star chef. And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., 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 and brother, I don't need seasoning. I taste that <laughs> good. Well, I mean, what, what more can you say? Let's just jump in. <laughs> so... Now you're not listening, I can tell you about Albert. I thought I could tell you eventually, but I'd have to get to know you a lot better because... Well, because I'd be so ashamed. Here's your chance to improve your table conversation. Tell Michael you live in a big house and you spend £400 a week on clothes. I spend £400 a week on clothes. You eat in the best restaurants. I eat in the best restaurants. Georgina, try a little harder, please. It's important that I tell you now so that I can have done with it. This is my wife, Georgina Spicker. She's got a heart of gold and a body to match. And I am Albert Spicker, and I have a heart of gold and a great deal of money to match. Albert beat me. Well, you know that. You saw the bruises. Pâté d'alouette with the chicory sauce. Pâté d'alouette with the chicory sauce. Terrine de Canton. Terrine de Canton. Cold turkey with lemon and basilica. Cold turkey with a lemon and basilica. Yeah. If someone give you a prairie oyster to eat, what do you think you'd be eating? Fish. <laughs> now, little, you have just eaten a sheep's bullock. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I ask you to work for me, Mitchell, I'll be expecting you to chew someone's bollocks off on demand. He had a suitcase under his side of the bed, and in it he kept all kinds of objects. Yeah! yeah. Get rid of that! Don't do that to a woman! I'll do what I like to a woman! That's your bloody trouble. The beautiful eyes, Georgie. And you have a beautiful prick. So the plot is there's a cook, there's a thief, there's a wife, there's a lover. Plot done. <laughs> and there are tensions because those four people have different interests and they overlap <laughs> okay. and they compete. It's a pretty simple story. <laughs> so, so the film starts out as all good films should with lots of dogs. So there. <laughs> Scrapping outside a giant set on a soundstage with lots of colored light and a shitload of smoke machines. Uh, Dumbledore plays the thief of the title. He's a London gangster and is introduced to us by beating up a guy, stripping him naked, smearing him with dog shit, and pissing on him. And making him eat. And making him eat the dog shit. There's, there's, there's a lot of eating of things. Oh, 
we'll get into that. <laughs> we will get into that. But anyway, the, so this is a so you know anyway, this guy owes him money. He's doing gangster, doing some gangster shit. Anyway, he then him and his cronies, they then enter this giant set, which is this standing in for this incredibly opulent looking restaurant. It's got this sort of this big cavernous, almost cathedral-like green kitchen, which connects to this lavish red dining room and also has this uh, ornate big white bathroom. And there's a sort of, um, there's an element to this film where I think it kind of wants you to feel the proscenium arch, be aware of the theatricality of it. I wouldn't like to say Brechtian because I feel like Brechtian is a very different style from this, but mm. it's that same sort of thing. It wants, it somewhat wants to make you aware of, of it. Anyway, uh, this is a French restaurant run by the cook of the title, a French chef who has become increasingly frustrated by the gangster who patronizes his restaurant every night, uh, pontificating on food and culture while he seems to know absolutely nothing about either subject, the gangster, not the chef, I mean. Um, he's antagonistic to the other customers, he bullies his men, and he abuses his wife, played by Helen Mirren. Um... She's, of course, tired of all the gangster's abuse, and while at dinner, she becomes interested in another customer, a bookshop owner who sits alone in the restaurant and reads every night. Uh, the two start carrying on a secret affair, um, aided, by the, aided in their secret rendezvous by the cook. Uh, the film takes place over a series of nights, charting how the affair blossoms and also the increasingly vulgar behavior of the, of the gangster. Eventually, he finds out about his wife's lover, uh, he's thrown into a murderous rage and announces he will kill him and eat him. Uh, the cook aids the pair escaping in a restaurant, leading to a sequence where the two have to hide out in a truck filled with rotting fish. Uh, they then take um, they then take refuge in a book depository where the cook sends them food. However, the gangster finds out about their whereabouts by torturing a young kitchen boy. He and his men find the lover and torture him to death by stuffing pages of books down his throat. Um, enraged, the wife goes to the cook and asks him to cook her lover's body. The cook, after some protests, eventually agrees. Uh, the wife, together with an entourage of people aggrieved by the gangster, confront him at the restaurant and present him with the cooked body of the lover. At gunpoint, the wife forces the gangster to eat a mouthful of the cooked body. He gags, and she shoots him, calling him a cannibal. And the curtain falls, and that's the movie. Hmm. So, so and, 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 and this is... I will say, Austin, because you don't—you don't really have any experience watching Peter Greenaway's work. This is Peter Greenaway's probably most accessible film. Mm. I've never seen any of his other works, so for me, this was, I guess, um, an accessible introduction or an easy introduction. But I say that with trepidation because it's not an easy watch. No, I mean, and it, trust me, if once you've been through. Prospero's books. This is a um, this 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 feels like a walk in the park. Hmm. See, I want to go back real quick before I tell you like verdict and stuff like that because I think we'll ease into it because um, I have a lot to say about this film, but I'm not sure how to tightly package it because I think it's a very affective film. It, it, it definitely induces a lot of emotions and thoughts. Uh, but I think that what you said about uh, Brecht was really astute, um, and I don't think you need to walk it back because I did experience immediately the Brechtian distancing effect, Brechtian alienation, or sometimes it's referred to the estrangement effect because there's an opening of the curtains before they enter 
the restaurant. And then at the end, again, it's only confirmed because there's a closing of the curtains. So there's clearly an intent by Greenaway to say, this is not real. You are not supposed to get lost into this story, and it's not supposed to just wash over you so that you uh, empathize with these characters. And you, um, even though there's empathy that's still going to be communicated because just emotion is communicative, right? And it's translated regardless by seeing humans in pain or humans struggling or humans striving or whatever. Um, but, but I think the point is, is for you to clearly recognize that there is a distancing between who you are and who they are. And I think that that's partly why I, this film affected me so much. Like, I'll be completely honest, and, and this, I guess, is how I'll kind of ease into my assessment of the film. And I don't know if this means that it's good or bad. I, those types of value judgments almost don't seem to fit what happened to me. But it literally made me sick. The film, now, I don't know if it's because I ate a bunch of pasta before or what. Um, but I was so viscerally affected by this film that it actually, like, I was a little bit nauseated, uh, while I was watching it and not, uh, you know, like some of it, I actually, like, I, I turned away. I wasn't looking some of the, because everything is so, as you said, opulent and everything is so lavish and everything is so, um, tactile and sensational that, them eating and them throwing up and then drinking and the noises and the chopping of the food on the table and and then you mix that with the beautiful form of these set pieces that are amazing and I found out that Jean-Paul Gaultier did the costumes and I love that because I wear Jean-Paul Gaultier's uh, cologne, Le Mail, in the house, woo! Um, but uh, there th there was just so much beauty mixed with the grotesque that that it really affected me dude like and i and i think there are other things that i want to say about that the individual elements that affected me but just generally speaking like yeah man it really hit me pretty heavy well and i, and I think it's interesting because greenaway seems to have this real fascination with um uh the meeting of the crass and the beautiful and how those two things kind of affect each other it's a yeah. constant push and pull because he makes these films that are these um very opulent looking things and i mean the interesting thing about Peter Greenaway is essentially his thesis is that we, um, as a culture with cinema, we are only influenced by the last 100 years of art and that actually film should look beyond the, the pure um, the, the pure repetition of simply copying other films and look at the great breadth of art as a, a, for inspiration. And so hmm. a lot of his... So this film, very specifically, is very influenced by paintings of the Baroque era. Uh, Baroque era and he's very fascinated with Rembrandt. I and mean, he even made uh, a film of sorts about Rembrandt. Um, and he's done these kind of big installations around um, art history, and he's very interested in kind of dissecting it's, it's almost It's almost an homage... But at the same time, it's also a very inventive – remember, I think I talked about it in this podcast. I saw um, the film – God, I think it's called 24 Frames by Kiristami. It's his last film where he basically imagines what the film is or, or what, the, what the frame of a still picture is like um, beyond the moment of the snapshot. Right. And so it's like the picture comes to life and you see like the before and the after kind of thing. And I feel like that this film is doing something really similar. It's like 
you see the, the the big, huge painting in the background that seems to be like the primary inspiration for the setup of the table, right? And like you said, it is this Baroque painting of these uh, these aristocratic types sitting around this table, and it almost is like Greenaway is thinking to himself, let's bring that to life, and let's make a whole story about those characters based on that painting and the emotions and the power relations and the sexual dynamics and um, the type of food and all these other things that we can extract and derive from that. And let's bring it to life and let's create a whole narrative around those Well, it's funny people. you said that because his film Night Watching is actually that exactly. He looks at the painting Night Watching and by Rembrandt and makes a film basically about Rembrandt's process in making Night Watching and then turns it into a weird... Mm conspiracy thing that's kind of strange and incomprehensible and hard to follow like i I don't watch i don't like night watching that much but it's a he is really fascinated in this idea of the narrative and the story within a piece of art Mm. um and it's it's interesting too because even like he said that his sort of main inspiration for the story was the sort of Jacobean revenge tragedies. Um, you know, specifically the one he listed was "Tis a pity she's a whore," um, right. which I'm I, I don't know. I read the synopsis of it. It doesn't sound anything like the cook, the thief, his wife, and the lover. So I don't really know um, if it's supposed to be an adaptation or just that he was inspired by having read it. But um, but you know, others other famous ones would include uh, the Spanish tragedy by Thomas Kidd, uh, the revenge tragedy by Thomas Middleton, or a couple of little plays like Titus Andronicus or Hamlet written by a little guy called Billy Shakespeare. Oh, Billy. Well, it wasn't actually written by Billy. It was written by somebody else, but people, you know, or a, a collection of people. But, you know, we don't have to get into Shakespearean theories right now. I'm kidding. I don't care. Yeah, let's not, let's not, <laughs> let's not start, like, let's not start questioning, you know, whether, uh, whether, you know, jet fuel can melt still be, steel beams or anything like that. <laughs> uh, um. But no, and I think I think that's the thing that's interesting about it because I think there's this 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 theme of opulence, this theme of the grotesqueness in the way that people um, consume. This film's very much about consumption, and and I think what's so interesting is that as a viewer, it, you almost feel like you're consuming so much visual information. It's like mm. it starts to almost hurt your head because you can't quite get all of it you mm. know and and especially just like these weird surreal touches like how when the characters move from one room to the other their clothes change into the same colors as the rooms um and it's it's that thing where i feel like when i'm watching it there's such a denseness to the visuals that i don't even know where to begin to start to dissect them in any kind of a fashion it becomes and that's the interesting thing it becomes like you almost wish that you could just sit and look at a still frame of it and just like take it like a painting and kind of Mm. you know start trying to deconstruct it piece by piece yeah i did find myself examining the frame and how full they were i mean it was too full at times where you can't catch it all and even though uh, the the camera movements are very slight to allow you better access. You know, it's still too much. There's still so much going on. And I think one of the things that I found that was so fascinating is I got really caught up in, especially the dining scenes where they're actually eating, with looking at all of the stuff on the table. And I was picturing in my mind when I go to museums and I look at similarly themed or similarly, let's say, um, decorated 
or designed or ornate uh, paintings. And I started thinking, oh yeah, you know what? When I look at those paintings, I do often think to myself, like, is there really a table that has that much food on it? Like, you know, because you see sometimes these, uh, these that kind of like, uh, you know, medieval or, or like, let's say the Renaissance, not medieval, Renaissance and, uh, and Baroque and later uh, paintings where it's like, they've got a ham hock and they've got a duck and they've got a chicken and they've got these loaves of bread and they've got glasses of wine. And you're like, well, usually tables are a little bit more sparse, right? They're not that full. Mm. But these were Also, people of... eat in the process of things and it's like it's right. just laid out there for yeah. them to, 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 to all look at. Yeah. And so I did find myself kind of almost consuming this film in a way that I do consume paintings when I go to a museum. And so from that perspective, it I was very engaged. And I, I think that his ability to suck me in while also making me aware that this is on a soundstage and they are acting, it's a very theatrical experience. And then, of course, Michael Gambon's performance is extremely theatrical, which, again, constantly reminds me that, hey, you're watching kind of like a piece of theater that's that's just filmed, right? Um but I think because it was able to draw me into the frame more, I think that's part of the reason why it affected me more. So when the violence does occur or when the the, the sort of more – like when people are getting sick or um, when there is uh, – like the sexual scenes were extremely intimate, I found. Those things were kind of almost more intense than maybe they would have if I just watched – um, a film that, you know, kind of like a typical film with a sex scene or a typical film that shows a guy getting shot or something like that, you know? Well, I think I think there's an interesting element to, to which the camera is very withdrawn and it kind of exists more for you like you, it would as if you were an audience member. It's kind of directing you towards these big motifs that you're sort of, mm. you know, when you're looking at a stage, there's nothing directing you where to look at beyond, say, the motion of the actors or, you know, the sort of like the, the technical effects of the lighting or things like that. And so really in a film, the difference is the camera dictates where you look. And so by ha by being presented with a frame that's quite static and quite big and full, it can be disorientating sometimes as a viewer because the camera isn't directing you what detail you're specifically supposed to be focusing on mm. which is which is again it, it's interesting it takes a lot of confidence to be able to say we are going to have these kind of these big theatrical you know uh you know frames where you know it's really about the blocking is how we're going to dictate what the viewer takes interest in and what the it way looks, they teach you to shoot coverage is wide shot medium Close. All right, we got to get it from the other and angle. And hey, look, nobody complains about coverage more than I do. You know, it's a um, <laughs> right. Um, I I I hate the lack of design. Shot you know, reverse shot. Them, okay, films. we get it. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that I think is really kind of interesting about this film is I like it. I gravitate towards it a lot. I've watched it probably four times at this point. Mm. I still can't really tell you what the fuck this movie's about. Like, I can't tell you what it's going for or what it's or what its message is. I get that there's an idea of consumption within it. I think there's some interesting elements in terms of the class politics, yeah. which one could even describe as potentially problematic, because I think there's an element to which it's sort of suggesting that the uh, the underclass are just um, uncouths and they can pr try and pretend to be 
sort of um uh they can they can try and pretend to put on the facade of upper class manners but they don't but they'll they'll never achieve that because that's just not what they are Mm. i mean i think that's a that's an uncharitable reading of it but i think that's a reading you could make of it Mm. um but i mean the interesting thing while researching this is apparently a lot of people saw this as a uh, a metaphor for thatcherism dude i was okay i literally just wrote down on a piece of paper political metaphor with a question because i got that and i don't exactly know um i don't know if it's like a perfect parable where like this person represents this and this person represents that it might be um but i really did I, I felt that. I felt that the stakes were presented in such a way and that the power relations were presented in such a way that the whole thing could be read as a sort of political metaphor or a parable about the corruption of the empire and then the collapse when the empire uh, starts to crumble because of uh, – various reasons right because of the mistreatment of your subjects and the mistreatment of your lover the person that you're supposed to care about um so there's something about that but i really got that as well i didn't tie it to thatcherism but that would be interesting as well i mean i I wouldn't be surprised but i definitely felt that there was something about like a commentary about world empires here when and this film came out in 1989 so it was very much britain was very much in in the you know sort of ha- had been through a lot under the kind of the the Thatcher administration yeah and i mean what from what i can see the sort of the theory on this feels pretty broad it's essentially the idea that you know Thatcher and her cronies were essentially this this large consuming force um that were anti intellectualism anti kind of uh uh and and you know, anti, you know, um, and, and we're just happy to exploit and consume and destroy everything in its wake. And we're, we're against sort of like art and, and, um, intellectual thought and all of this. It's, it's, this is why, this is is why I read, this is something I just, I'm just regurgitating that I read and I found it an incredibly broad assessment of it. So I'm not really sure how easily I buy into it, but I think there's at least a kernel of it, something interesting there. Yeah, I think I think what I'd say is maybe it's even better to say that that Thatcherism, as represented potentially in this film, could be viewed as the collapse of the British Empire. And so he represents the empire that has just like, you know, people talk about the Roman Empire and what led to its downfall. And people talk about the potential end of the American Empire. There's a, a book by a guy named Giovanni Origi. Uh, he's an Italian a political economist and he talks about like these stages that that um uh that unfold in a particular way and that there's a certain telltale sign of the end of the empire about you know increased financialization and speculation which could be tied to opulence and consumption like you're saying so maybe it is sort of about the crumbling of the empire um and what happens at that point when it's about to crumble I think that that would be better than just saying it's Thatcherism from what, from the readings that you're telling me. Because I don't know that you could be like, yeah, he's Thatcher. Well, and it almost doesn't do justice to the grandiose nature of the film. I mean, this film is huge. It's got to be more than just a singular government and how it's a part of um, like this socioeconomic shift. I mean, it has to be, if it's, if it is a political metaphor in any way, it has to be a Shakespearean level 
right? It has to be fucking huge about empires collapsing and worlds being destroyed. That's if, if it has that element at all, because this is one of the bigger films I feel like I have ever seen, and I almost wish I would have seen it on a big screen because I feel like it would have been even more consuming of me. Well, it's so know? interesting to think about how, you know, obviously a couple of weeks ago we watched Titanic, and you think of how the interiors of that are very opulent, and but they don't feel anything like this, and it's... Oh. You know, it's a difference in how something is shot and how something is presented. Because it's also, it's interesting to me how, like, the restaurant and um, the kitchen and the bathroom and all these interiors, they don't feel like they have ceilings. They're just these, they, they feel like they just, they're like, the rooms almost feel like they're five stories high. You mm. know, it's, they just feel like these these giant spaces. And there's something that's just so fascinating about the way that the space is worked out in it. and the fact that when they leave the restaurant they transition into this thing that very much looks like a soundstage you know and it's this like we said this 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 there's a, a certain kind of uh proscenium arch quality where you're just kind of sitting there going like you're you're, you're constantly questioning what reality is and what you're mm. being what what the meaning of this break from so into this kind of like um unrealistic, you know, interiors and exteriors means. Mm. There's the bit when when Helen Mirren and uh, Michael, when after the after the speaker invites them, Michael Gambon, uh, after he invites them over to the table, then um, pr up until that point, they haven't spoken to each other at all, right? And then they start to speak, and he tells this story, right, um, about this film, that he was watching, right? Or, or what is it? Is it that he was watching or I heard a director talking about it? But the idea that like... No, no, the, no. He said he was watching a... He, so he watched a film. Yeah. And so the main character in the film that he said he watched doesn't talk for the first 30 minutes and then he opens his mouth and it ruins the film. And it was so interesting because that was another one of those Brechtian moments where it's kind of like Peter Greenaway saying, I know that for 30 minutes there's been this sexual tension and this sensuality just between looks and touch and they've already had sexual encounters and she's intentionally like covered his mouth so that he doesn't talk and there and and so the the tension that has been built up through silence is broken now but he's also saying but I'm doing this intentionally and I want you to be aware that I'm aware of what I'm doing now but I'm not going to you're not going to get lost like this story of this film that uh, Michael's character is telling, that like what happened with him. That's not going to happen now because you're not going to lose interest. It's still going to build. More stuff is going to happen. So again, I think that's another one of those, you know, breaking the fourth wall, making you consciously aware again, just in case you got caught up in their love story. Don't start thinking that you're feeling the same feelings and that you're going to get like unconsciously involved here. Remember what you're doing, but don't worry. It's still going to capture your attention for the rest of, for the another hour and a half or whatever. And I thought that was well, really I think there's also, there's an interesting element too to that in the sense that Greenaway is someone who I think is very concerned with cinema as a visual art form. And I think he's, I mean, some of his films, you could call of them, challenging in their narrative structure uh, other people might call them incomprehensible um and i think that's part of it is i think a lot of his interests aren't with how traditional narratives are told and so actually 
I think it's almost a slight kind of like personal statement there from him to a certain extent is this idea of that, you know, cinema is not just uh, two people talking in a medium shot. It's 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 got to be about more interesting things than that. It's, um, you know, and I think and I think that's that's kind of it. That's that's kind of the point is that uh, I think he wants you to, to to feel things through what's being visually presented rather than just simply see two people be witty at each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you do. You do feel that through the atmosphere that he creates. I mean, so much so that I actually, I actually, when, when the violence turns to Helen Mirren in particular, um, and I think this was, it was, it was a combination of things that kind of made me a little bit nauseated, but it was particularly that violence that, um, and maybe it was just because I had, I was having a conversation with some friends last night about like, the fetishization of violence towards women in cinema and on TV. And um, and so it kind of maybe struck me a little bit more potently because that was in my mind. Even though I wasn't consciously going in this, I didn't know what was going to be in this fucking movie. Um, but when it happened, I was hyper aware of that violence and it was more intensified because of it. And it actually made it really difficult for me to watch and I also wondered if because of this contrast between the beauty and the style and the form and the grotesque content, because of that clash between those two, if that doesn't almost even make the violence that you see even more revolting because of the dichotomy, because of that sort of like binary tension, you know, does that make any, I don't know if that hit you at all, but I almost found it a little bit troublesome. You know, and I well, I think there's yeah. there's an interesting idea in this in general in the way that Greenaway is presenting all of these things. So he's he's presenting violence, sex, and consumption all in these kind of very graphic, um, these graphic ways. And kind of sloppy. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and I think there's something. I mean, when the sort of lovers, you know bang for the first time it's sort of intercut with these shots of like the food being prepared yeah there's this idea definitely of this equation of food and consumption and sex and violence and all of these things are sort of brought into this kind of mixing pot together and of course like when they're sort of when you know there's this idea of that that when they're making when when they're when they're banging for the first time, it's kind of like they're 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 concocting this incredible, um, opulent feast, mm. or at least a, you know a, a, a sort of a, a well prepared meal of some mm. sort. It's like a recipe, very fancy, yeah, ingredients, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. and then when that's broken, they are stuffed into this truck with this rotting this rotting fish and it's almost like this 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 violence has 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 come in and, and destroyed that and 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 fucked it up and left it this sort of carcass of what does it was. does them speaking initiate the downfall like is that the point is there something about that greenaway is is doing where the introduction of them talking no, to I each wouldn't other say, yeah. i wouldn't say it does okay. i mean i suppose to me I mean, because cause the way that they're essentially discovered is because um, one of the girlfriends of one of the gangsters ends up seeing them. And then in a moment where she's angry at Michael Gambon, she sort of blurts it out. Um, and that's how he finds out about it. 
So I think I think there's more of an idea of she's this is all an extension of the violence and that so mm. they're uh, uh, you know of of, of her um, you know sort of like saying it in order a way as a way of trying to sort of like fuck with him or you know sort of bring him down. I don't think that anything you can say about the two of them being together would be the corrupting force within it. I think Michael Gambon is always the corrupting force. That would be mm. my so, uh, uh, association with it. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. I I just wondered because it seems like such an intentional break. In it's interesting because you're really hung. You're really sort of putting a lot of focus on that. Yeah, it's something I don't even think about with the film. Like to mm. me, that was more something that I saw as a kind of throwaway, cute little element to mm. it. But I didn't really look at it as, as a strong thematic element of the film. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting, again, because I think, I think that's, that's the difficulty with the films, that I don't think it's... I, I don't think it's... The, I think its themes are so broad that I think it leaves a lot of room for you to decide what elements of it you find engaging or interesting. Mm. And that just wasn't something that piqued my interest that much with it. Whereas I think, again, this notion of the the interplay between the, the extremity of the visceral feel of the sex, the violence, and, and, and the food was what really fascinated me. Yeah. And I mean, and it's interesting if you think about it too, because, you know, food in and of itself can be, uh, it can be messy, it can be poisonous, but it can be also be uh, it can give you an incredible high. You can get sort of these great euphoric feelings from food. Um, it's also, it's also a commodity. Um, it can be a symbol of class. You know, it's, it's something that has a lot of broad ways that it can be used as a sort of metaphor or be used in different ways to, you know, uh, to, um, as, as power within society. Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the reasons why when Jesus was being harassed by the Pharisees, they criticized him for sitting down and eating with prostitutes and tax collectors because the idea was is if you sit down with them to eat, you're accepting them. There is something that is essentially crucial and powerful about the meal, right? Of sitting down with somebody. You're absolutely right. I I guess I hadn't I didn't I didn't I didn't think about that as much. Um about what what do we what do we talk about when we talk about people who are in who are obsessed with with power and we talk about them as greedy you know the the mm. common uh sort of visual idea of someone who is um sort of all consuming you know in terms of power in terms of wealth is 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 you know the idea of them sitting on a throne fat filled you know surrounded by food it's like food that's is right. the symbol of kind of um of power in a lot of ways and that's essentially what you know michael gambon's a a, a big dude he's this sort of gluttonous person just hmm. stuffing himself with food while he sort of like you know, pontificates on things he knows nothing about and, and abuses yeah. people from this, 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 uh, this, this position of power, you know? And I mean, it's, so, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting the way it's playing on a lot of these sort of classical themes. And I think that's, again, I mean, again, this, this, this thing is based off a sort of a structure and an idea from plays that were popular, uh, you know, 400 years ago. Mm. Um, it's interesting how many of the, the, how much the film, while being very modern in terms of how graphic it's willing to go with its its sex and violence, um, it's actually still very um, classical in a lot of the things that it's 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 showing. Mm. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's interesting too. kind of just going back a minute to you were saying why I was so hung up on that bit where they break their silence and speak. I think because it might just be because the way I consumed the film and this just hit me as you were as you were Hmm. talking. I watched the first 20 minutes last night and I watched the rest of it today. And in the first Hmm. 20 minutes, uh, Michael Gambon doesn't shut the fuck up. For like the first 20 mm. minutes. It's almost like non Like I actually paused it and I was like, has he stopped talking for 20 <laughs> minutes? I was like, he must have gotten that script and been like, dude, how long is this fucking monologue? But he... How many lines do I have to memorize? <laughs> yeah, dude. And it's not like there are a lot of cuts either. So no. he is talking for the well... first 20 minutes almost nonstop and Georgina is not talking. And Michael is not talking. And it was that contrast between the two, between the difference in what does a loquacious person have in terms of power versus silence? And what is the power relation that is embedded within silence? Is there something powerful about silence? What is the power? It's a different kind of power. Uh, It it creates different kinds of social relations, but there's still something there. And it was that binary between those two that, again, was just so stark to me. And I think maybe that's why I got so caught up when they actually – when they do talk and they only talk because again Michael Gambon introduces them and forces them to talk so it's it's on his terms and then she tries to be like she tries to say things that are particular that she would say but he wants her to just like mimic the script and talk the way that he wants her to say like oh i eat at the best restaurants and i wear the best clothes and i have the best dentist and i did it and then as soon as she starts to say anything that implies that she has agency he gets fucking pissed and he stops it you know? Well, of course, he, he beats her because she says how they can't have a have a kid. And he's so infuriated because he he loses some sense of sense of power at that point. This idea that he's some kind of big, powerful figure who can't impregnate his wife. Mm. It's, um, you know, he feels like he has to sort of like retake some sort of weird domination. I mean, um, yeah. you know, there's there's things, too, in the film that like I don't really know what the. um what the deal with choir boy is. I don't really kind of like know what his, what he's going for with that. I mean, it's, it's a nice atmospheric element that you have this kind of strange, um, almost, uh, what would you say it? Like, um, what, 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 what do you call it when you have like the, the off stage sort of choir of people, Thing. Oh, like the the chorus, like, what they're uh, in, the like chorus, yeah. yeah, he's almost like an a ancient kind of Greek chorus, tragedy. Like a, yeah, yeah, he's almost kind of like a chorus, like in the and 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 I like again, it's that that what we talked about, you know, with the the Brechtian thing, that how you're aware of him singing the whole time. You know what I thought? Interacts with people well. I I thought that it. I think that everything with the choir boy comes to a head in the scene when Gambon is trying to. Um, to kind of like take his innocence away. So there's him being a choir boy. Obviously we say like, oh, you're such a choir boy, meaning like innocence, right? Good kid, religious kid or whatever. And so um, the the scene when he's trying to take off Helen Mirren's clothes and then I don't know if he's trying to get the choir boy to actually like touch her or just to see her and uh, to see her naked. But there's something about – because he mentions it explicitly that like, oh, I was a choir boy too until I met her and she kind of corrupted me because she introduced me to those things. And he's like, oh, come here, kid. I'm going to show you those things. And so again, there's this interesting idea about the woman as the temptress, the female seductress. You know, She's the corrupting influence. She kind of 
and takes someone's innocence away and turns them into a, a man who then becomes corrupt and powerful because of the wily ways of sexual prowess or something like that. But also there's this idea of like losing innocence that I think is important. And then and then it's directly after that uh, where they he takes the choir boy and Helen Mirren out to the car. The choir boy escapes and then Gambon, I think, rapes Helen Mirren in the car. Which which is interesting because it's one of the few points where the film is more restrained in how it shows the violence. And I suppose my question to a certain extent is, is that a good or a bad thing? Like, why is it that whereas we're quite happy, the film's quite happy to show an awful lot of, like, the violence in other places, that's an element where they hold back? Hmm. Yeah, I did wonder that, too. Um... I don't know if it's because it's just too much on display. Like when you watch Gaspar Noé's Irreversible, that's that that scene with Monica Bellucci in the the, the tunnel or whatever is it's too much, man, you know? Um you don't want to watch that anymore. You've seen it, you get it, you can't get it out of your fucking mind, and I wonder if and I don't know. I don't know. But I wonder if Greenaway's like, "Okay, that's too much." Or is it the opposite? Like we talked about, or maybe we, you and I just talked about it offline. I can't remember. But in um, You Were Never Really Here, how the violence is all off camera and how it kind of almost forces the audience to imagine it more and it almost draws you in more. And that's kind well, actually, of... Actually, the thing I said yeah. the, with, with specifically with You Were Never Really Here is actually what it does is it cuts out any of the uh, kinetic excitement of violence it takes away the action and only shows the aftermath which i find very fascinating it's 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 actually it is very deliberate in terms of showing you the brutality of the violence but it doesn't allow you to enjoy the visceral thrill of it and i think that's something that's very interesting um do you think there's something similar going I, on I, here I, I i well here you are definitely seeing the action of violence you know it's you know, and that's the thing, and you were never really here. Is you don't see the action. Like he swings the hammer, you don't see the motion of the hammer swinging. Really, you see, mm. you don't see the connection. You just simply see what happens afterwards. The point is almost like you don't get to have even like the fun of seeing John Wick like punch somebody. You only get to see the aftermath of what what that person's face now looks like. Mm. Um, but here, I don't think that there's any kinetic beauty to the violence because it's portrayed in this very stark fashion. There's no exciting camera moves or slow motion or anything that could make it feel sort of exciting viscerally it's just and it's also like the vi the 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 violence tends to be just gross it's like there's nothing there's you know a guy running around hitting people with a hammer and you know and sort of with like sort of martial arts move that's that's cool watching a dude make a dude eat shit and then <laughs> then piss on him isn't isn't cool looking it's a it's a it, the violence is more stark and kind of just miserable you know what it was for me too it's stark and it's miserable and it's so consistent that i think that's why it also affected me it doesn't let up at all like but even it's when also he's because he's actually very just verbally violent abusive. yes and that's part of it so it's even like the actual amount of violence you see on screen is a lot less than you think it is but because michael gammon is this it just embodies this feeling of violence in him. It yeah. feels like you're watching two hours of him being violent, even though you actually only see him be violent um, a couple of times. You know what? The more we talk about this, the more I'm convinced that it is like this big political metaphor about empire. Because that's it too, right? 
Because they're not only violent with actual hot wars, but even like through quote-unquote diplomacy and through economic sanctions and through bullying people around and through threats and through um, colonial exploitation and all these other elements that are they're still exploitative and domineering, even if it's not dropping bombs or going to literal hot war. I, I, what it, I think, yeah. I think the 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 interesting thing too about this film is that it's very much it's it's doing violence and sex in its own way, and I think the interesting thing that people often fall into is that they decide that there's one right way that you're supposed to do it, which isn't true. And actually mm. I think I've said this before about Tarantino is I think one of the biggest people, things that people misunderstand about Tarantino is he uses violence in different ways throughout his film. And he has a, he has, he has ways that violence is used in different forms or functions and the tone shifts in terms of how he does it. He's actually really, really talented at this, but people decide that, people because they have a preconceived notion of it decide that the violence all has to mean one thing within his film mm. and i think and i don't think that's greenaway i think greenaway is very specifically he's going for a very specific tone with the violence but it's interesting then too to say the way that he presents the violence in this sort of very stark straightforward fashion is actually the same way he presents the sex but at the same time the sex still has this kind of erotic romanticism mm. to it it still feels somewhat stylized and sort of um, tender, even though it's presented in this, we've got two people naked lying on top of each other kind of fashion. Mm. You know, something that in theory, if you described it to somebody, they would say, oh, that sounds pornographic. But it's not pornographic in nature. There's something very withdrawn about it. And the, there's a sort of interesting way that the nudity becomes so natural that you stop even really thinking about it as sort of sensational or salacious. It's just kind of, it's just kind of the natural state, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Yeah, um, I think you also see the the sort of like um, the process of making the audience comfortable with nudity. You also see that with regards to talking about sex in the scene between Helen Mirren and the cook when he's describing what he saw, which I found to be a really fascinating scene because she says something like, how am I supposed to know if he loved me? Um, unless somebody else saw it, which I thought was also really interesting. I didn't know if that was a sort of, again, a film, this idea of like a film thing. Like you have to watch something, you have to see art in order to know the human experience or something. I didn't know if there was something going on there. But but beyond just that, this idea that he's describing to her, I saw him kiss your neck and I saw you take his penis into your mouth and I saw him put his hand between your legs. And the, you know, for all intents and purposes, they're strangers. Like, yeah, she he works for her husband, but... Like, this isn't like a, a girlfriend or a really good friend or a family member. This is, you know, somebody that is an employee of their business. And they're having this really open and honest sex conversation. And I thought that was kind of interesting as well because it doesn't feel too awkward. It kind of is like it's just amazing how forthright these people are with talking about well, these things. Well, I think things. the interesting thing, too, is that if you then think about how everything is filtered through the prism of Gambit and how he kind of crassifies and destroys mm. and and mutilates everything, you know, in his path. It's the same way with sex, the way he talks about sex, the mm. way he treats sex. It's mm. this, it becomes, through the prism of him, it becomes this sort of gross, disgusting, violent thing, you know. And it's, it's again, it's, it's a lot of it is about how he processes things that are quite beautiful and he sort of destroys them through his own kind of 
grotesque view of the world. So, you know, he takes the beauty of the art of this food and he, he eats it, you know, in this disgusting way and, you know, sort of like makes a mockery out of it. Mm. He takes the, the idea of literature and just throws it away mm. and says, you know, and it, it, at one point he says, uh, you know, gives it to, hands it to one of the waiters and says, grill it. Um, and, you know, he sort of says, this is a restaurant. This is for eating, not for reading. The only thing you should be reading is the menu, you know. And then, uh, yeah, and again, like I said, he does the same thing with sex. Uh, sex becomes this very functional thing because, again, sex becomes predominantly about this idea of him perpetuating his own seed, his own legacy, and how he becomes deeply shamed when it's suggested that he can't, you know, uh, you know, have a child. You know, he's, you know, it, every, everything becomes this horrible functional use of power. Everything becomes about power to him mm. and it's how he corrupts everything. You know, he's this, and I suppose that's where the idea of consumption really comes in. Yes. It's like he's consuming everything, everything, retaining and understanding none of it mm. and regurgitating it out in this horrible, disgusting fashion. Mm. I mean, it's even interesting. You have that point where Tim Roth, you know, who's clearly just eaten too much, just kind of throws up at the table, you know, and it's it's this idea of nobody's appreciating or understanding or loving any of this. It's purely just everything just gets transitioned into this 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 status and power. Mm. I think that's really interesting, the relationship between consumption and then it's all just being regurgitated through just this endless soliloquy, <laughs> right? Where he's just commenting and accusing and deriding and criticizing fucking everything and everyone. That is right. It's like input and output. And um, that's interesting. I do. I know we're, we're running long and I do want to make sure we get to this because I want to I want to ask you particularly two questions. Um, one about the ending and one about the title. So the ending, what do you think is going on with Michael gets killed? Obviously, they find out about the affair, Gambin and his men, they kill Michael, they force feed pages of books down his throat, they stuff it down there with a wooden spoon, which is also, I think, the wooden spoon that he used to abuse his wife. Um, cause she mentioned, yeah, cause she does mention that there were these tools that he used on her and then it's, it is a wooden spoon, so I kind of wondered if that was kind of something similar, and he's sticking it down his throat. And I think, again, there's that um, that allusion maybe to how he was also kind of like sticking that inside of her in a violent way, and she kind of mentions mm. that. Well, um, there's definitely – I think there's an element of penetration definitely that's that it's that he's going for with it, this idea that there's, it's a form of – again, a form of violation in, in a similar way to which he violated his, his wife. Mm. Yeah, consumption, violation, you know, uh, rape. It, th those are themes that are recurrent. Um, okay, so then, so then Michael dies, and then Helen Mirren comes up with this plan to have the cook uh, cook his dead body, Michael's dead body, and then serve Michael's dead body to um, Michael Gambon. And then you get this elaborate feast at the end, this private event, and then Helen Mirren, and then all the rest of the gang that had previously, I guess, been afraid of or had allegiance to Michael Gambon, they've all kind of flipped sides now, and they all, like, support her now, and they humiliate him and force him to eat this dead body of this man that he had previously exploited and abused and murdered, um, and then they force him to eat his dick. What's going on there? <laughs> I don't think they actually force him to eat the dick do they i thought i think she just says it but i don't think he actually eats the dick oh, okay i thought he did okay no 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 i think he just eats a piece of him oh, okay um, i thought i thought it was dick but so she no. says it he eats a piece and then she shoots him in the head you can't just kill the king you have to humiliate him 
to to disempower him. Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of things. One, obviously, structurally going back to this idea that is kind of based on these kind of Jacobean revenge tragedies, this is a very much a common theme. Like if you want to look at like say Titus Andronicus, obviously the end is that he kills her sons and and bakes them in a pie and tricks her into eating them. You know, so there's an obvious allusion to to that. And then the idea with a lot of these revenge tragedies was usually everyone died at the end. Mm. Um, so you know, usually there's some idea that both the good guys and the bad guys will die in these in these things. Hmm. Um, so obviously that's obviously the classical inspiration that is coming from. So it makes sense on that basis. But I suppose kind of like from a thematic basis, and I suppose I've never, weirdly enough, I'm not sure I've ever really thought that deeply into what the consumption of the body means. But I think, I think there's something very interesting in this idea too of how he says earlier in the film when he first finds out about it, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to eat him. And mm. this is this kind of like... This is, again, this kind of idea of him being this all-consuming thing that he sees his power through being able to engorge himself in things. So, And I think, to, to a certain extent, I think it's her calling... It's this poetic way of her calling his his bluff and showing him up to be this kind of... Um, I don't want to say hypocrite, but... Um, you know, inadequate person because he's all bluster and he can't mm. actually face up to the things that he, that he, that he's, that, that he brags or claims about. Um, cause of course so much of the film too is also him bragging about having this great understanding of everything from <laughs> art to literature to everything. And also, you know how he'll, he on several occasions talks about being an artist himself. And even when he's, when he, when he kills, um, the lover, he sort of, uh, he, he sort of, he talks about how it's this 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 great sort of clever act on his part to feed him the books, you know, as this way as this way of killing him. Mm. Um, and so I think, in a certain way, it's maybe her calling him his bluff. But I I I suppose you could also look at it from the standpoint that ultimately, what this idea of consumption and exploitation will eventually lead to is revolution. And so, and then you'll be forced to deal with the repercussions of what you sowed. So if you look at it from, say, I don't know, take, for example, say like the, I mean, they allude to the French Revolution. The French Revolution, yeah. So if you think about it from that perspective, it's essentially him reaping what he sows. And he is, so if you look at it as, as him, say, going to the guillotine to get his head chopped off, it's him having to step over step through the bodies and the ghosts of the things he's wrought as a, as a, on the way to his execution. Mm. And so, no, I mean, again, funnily enough, I've never really thought about it, but obviously now that, you know, we're talking about it, the allusion to the French revolution, but that's the thing that she pulls out of his mouth, you know, the, the, the body of the dead lover, she pulls the page French revolution. What's the line he says? He says something about, um, uh, the French something was harder to swallow than the French revolution or something like that. I can't remember. He has something that he says about that. And he talks about Napoleon, um, during his whole thing about talking about what dictators ate. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that would be my broad reading of it. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting. Um, mm. I don't know. I think it's, it's such a thought provoking film. Um, I, th- I thought you, I thought you would dig this movie. I thought you'd be into this. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know because it kind of, like I said, it kind of made me nauseated. And so as much as I find it so fascinating, I also am a little, like, upset. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because I was thinking this though. I was thinking about how you and I have this kind of push and pull often with kind of art cinema and what we're we're into. And this is very much art cinema. This is not kind 100%. of like I mean and I was kind of sitting there and going like why does something like this appeal to me while say I find something like the Turin horse deeply tedious. And I think because there's so much detail for me to get wrapped up in, but I also think because I think the film is so visceral in nature that there's an excitement to that. And I think, mm. you know, we think we've made a joke s- several times about how, you know, I'm actually quite engaged in quite nihilist views of, of the world in, in, in film. And, you know, mm. I, I, I look at the way that this film presents, you know, uh, its view of humanity. And I don't actually think, and I think you could make some interesting parallels with like a film like pain and gain, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a disdainful kind of, destructive idea of what humanity represents you know and i and i think that there is a kind of nihilistic element to the movie even though i suppose it does end with this idea of revolution at, at the end of it but um so i i don't know i think maybe that's part of it maybe there's just a certain type of theme or a certain type of presentation that's far easier for me to engage with within um more art cinema than say you know something that's more wholly philosophical or intellectual in the mm. way that, uh, that 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 you gravitate towards. I don't really have like this need to immediately rewatch this film. I can say that I feel like not not just because like I didn't like it. I mean, I I I almost feel like this film is like beyond assessment for me. Um, Obviously, we had an amazing conversation, and I feel like we could fucking keep talking about this forever. It's got so much stuff, but I don't know if I want to watch it again. I mean, maybe at some point in my life, 15, 20 years from now, it would be really interesting in a different setting. But I'm kind of like, okay, cool. I I don't want to forget it. Like, I don't want to lose these interesting things that we've discussed. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, okay, (laughs) next. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm ready for a palate cleanser. So, um, I don't know if this is going to be a palate cleanser. It kind of is because it's an uplifting film about, uh, you know, revolution, uh, interestingly enough. Um, we are going to watch Raoul Peck's The Young Karl Marx. I have never seen that. I know you so, have never uh, seen it. Um, you have, yeah. did you see um, I'm Not Your Negro? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. So, uh, so Raoul Peck is, um, I guess he's kind of an art 
filmmaker, documentary filmmaker as well, but he's a, a very prominent political activist. And he did the uh, I Am Not Your Negro documentary on James Baldwin that got a lot of praise. And then um, he did a feature film actually the same year. They came out the same year um, or maybe, you know, a couple months apart or whatever. But uh, that is called The Young Karl Marx. And it basically looks at Karl Marx, uh, who's played by – no, it's not Karl Marx that's played by August Diehl. Uh, Engels is played by August Diehl, who is the German soldier in Inglorious Bastards who – uh, is down in the basement with Michael Fassbender and who spots him when he does the wrong three. And who was also in the film... Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. He does play Karl Marx. He does play Karl Marx, I, I believe. Yeah, um, it's also got uh, Vicky Creeps from um, from um, Phantom Thread. Yes, yes. And uh, August Deal is also... We did that film The Ninth Day. And you remember yeah. the German soldier that kind of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the German soldier too. So I love him as an uh, actor. And so... um. I yeah. So we're gonna watch the young Karl Marx. You're gonna get a little bit of an education about uh, the history of Marxism, my friend. So am I? All of my capitalist leanings going to be destroyed after one watch of this movie? One can only hope. Back-to-back films about the fall of an empire that gets consumed with consumption, and then we can then move into a sort of more analytical uh, analysis of Victorian England uh, industrial capitalism. Yeah. Well, and it's 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 funny if too because uh, of course um, we uh, I feel like this is kind of a palate cleanser for the fact that we did Jurassic Park and uh, <laughs> Titanic back to back. Yeah, to go like get like super intellectual for two weeks just to just to like uh, get our uh, you know get our intellectual on. Well, you know then then I'll follow it. I'll need to find a movie about Adam Smith so that um, we can uh, so that we can balance all of this out. I... Wolf of Wall Street, uh, or just Wall Street? That is not about Adam Smith. It's a, they're off. about his legacy. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Well, you want to talk <laughs> no, about Karl Marx's legacy? Let's. <laughs> let's. We can. We can get into that if you want. <laughs> Don't try and make me feel like I'm the Megan McCain of this podcast. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So, young Karl uh, Marx anyway. next week. Yeah, yeah, so you'll call Marks next week. Um, you know, in the meantime, uh, you know, check us out um, at idigthismovie.com. Uh, I am terrible at uh, Twitter, so I yeah. will try and get better, but we have a Twitter page, which is at idigthismovie. Um, and, um, yeah, if you want to check out my stuff, go to kirasuit.com. Um, if you want to go on Instagram, I've been putting up a lot of kind of conceptual video work lately. I've been doing some work with, um, a brand called Ink Poisoning. I've been doing some cool conceptual videos for them. Yes. Um, and yeah, and if you are in, well, actually, this is the funny thing is because of course we record the week before, so it never matters. But, uh, if you were in Belgium, uh, for the... Uh, Brussels International Fantastic Film Festival. Um, it was good seeing you there, and uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we won. Um, but I have no idea. Um, most likely not. But you know, you never know. Um, and then also, if you were in Glasgow for our, our screening there, then I wasn't there. But uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, yeah. For the film Wretch, I don't think you said that, by the way. Yeah, for the film Wretch. Yes, that film. Yes. Um, yeah, and if you want to hit me up, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. That's pretty much it for me at the moment. I mean, I have all kinds of other shit going on, but nothing I need to push at the moment. So just hit me up on Twitter and you'll find out about all my shit. All right, and come back to watch us argue economics now.